Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center, and we talk about his course called The Jewish Gospel of Matthew. Today is Hanukkah, so before we get into the details of the gospel, I wanted to ask how Jesus celebrated Jewish feasts like this one. Now, Hanukkah is not actually mentioned specifically in Matthew, but it is in John chapter 10. So I chatted with Dr. Shazer a bit about Jesus and the Jewish feasts, which took us into a very interesting conversation about the gospel of Matthew's use of sacrificial ideas from Leviticus and ransom ideas. Oh, you're going to love it. Take a listen. Jesus uh, observes Hanukkah, and um, it's called the Feast of Dedication in John's gospel, in, in most English translations, uh, because that's, that's, of course, what, what it is. The Feast of Dedication goes all the way back to the period of the Maccabees. And so you're right, Cindy, the festival of Hanukkah is well-established by Jesus's day, and Jesus would have celebrated it, even though Matthew doesn't say so explicitly. It just doesn't quite show up in Matthew. But the theology of the Maccabees certainly shows up in huh. Matthew. In yeah, fact, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that the the, the most fundamental theology behind the reason for Jesus's death, the reason for the cross in Matthew, comes from or has 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 precedent in the books of the Maccabees, particularly mm-hmm. the Maccabees, uh, second Maccabees and fourth Maccabees. And ju- just to give you the context in the gospel itself, in, in Matthew 20, 28, and this is a kind of just a, a representation of Mark 1045, if you want to mm-hmm. look at the parallel, Jesus says, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Greek, that word is lutron, and it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word kofer. You can hear in kofer, K-P-R, K-P-R, right? That comes from the root lichaper, which means to atone. And that language is going all the way back to Leviticus, like Leviticus 16, where sacrifices are made in order to atone for Israel's sins. And so that ransom language that Jesus uses is Jesus is going to offer himself as a sacrifice in order to to forgive sin, just as the priests used animals in Leviticus. Now, what's really important about that ransom language, that ransom idea, is that we're dealing with a person now, not an animal. Jesus says of himself that he'll be a lutron, a ransom for the sins of many. Okay, so what do you want to do with that? Well, If you go back to the Maccabees, there's a story of seven Jewish young men and and their mother who were being persecuted under the Seleucid Empire. This is such a good story. It's so gruesome. It it is. You're right. It is so gruesome. And I won't go into the gory details, but the writers of the Maccabean literature really do dwell on this story. 
and each boy, each son of this mother is, is martyred, is killed. And there's a big, long speech. Each of them says something before they die. And, um, the gist of it is the, the, the last boy who dies stands up and says, may my life be a ransom for my nation. May my blood serve as an atonement for my people. Hmm. In, Ma- in fourth Maccabees, it actually, the narrator jumps in and says that these boys' lives, what they did was an antipsukon in Greek. It's a very fun word to say, but anti means essentially in exchange for in this context, and psuke means a life. So the writer of Maccabees says, uh, of Maccabees says that the boys' li- the boys' lives were a life exchange for hmm. the nation, uh, hmm. for for the people. And in most English translations, it actually says ransom for the people. Now it's a different word than lutron than what Jesus uses, but that the first part of that word in Maccabees is anti exchange for. And that's the exact same Greek word that Matthew uses when Jesus says that he's going to give his life as a ransom for anti many. So literally it means in exchange for many. So that is, I mean, the fundamental atonement theology of Matthew has its precedent in the books of the Maccabees. Hence, all good gospel readers should be reading this material, by the way, even if you're not from a church tradition or denominational background that, uh, whatever, uh, incorporates these books into liturgy. You should still be reading the material because Jesus would have known it and Matthew certainly knows it. Right. And that is one of the things that I love, not only about your course, but a lot of the courses at IBC are continually bringing in all of these extra biblical texts to kind of make the cultural context of whatever passage that's being interpreted just seeing it more clearly. The literature everyone else knew, we just don't know it because we're distant from it. So we just have to do a little bit more work. That's, that's exactly right. And, and you know, uh, this is a real, a real tough one for a lot of people too, right? So Jesus dies as God's son, but he's a, he's a human being, you know? And so now we're getting into sort of like human sacrifice land. And that, and that bugs a lot of people. I completely understand why that bugs a lot of people. Sure. So, so, it, so if, but if you come to the Gospels with no background in the Tanakh or in Jewish history or literature, this is going to like really smack you between the eyes. And you might even say, you know, I'm done with this whole thing. It's so bizarre and, uh, mm. and rebarbative to me. It, it just doesn't sit well with me. But for a first century Jewish person who's soaked in these stories, like in the Maccabees, yeah. Or say, for example, Phineas, who, who kills Cosby and Zimri in Numbers yes. chapter 25 and, and says this, these deaths make atonement for Israel. Or uh, Numbers 35 with the high priest whose death is the marker of the manslayer who can come back from the city of refuge. And nothing atones for the one who kills somebody except the death of the high priest and, and the famous Leviticus scholar Jacob Milgrom, uh, Torah scholar Leviticus and Numbers, really, of the priestly literature, says that that this verse about the high priest in, in Numbers 35 dying, it says he says that apparently just as the priest atones through sacrifices made in his life, he atones for the manslayer in his death. So that is, the deaths of the righteous mm-hmm. make atonement in the Tanakh and in the Maccabees. And indeed, the, ra- or the rabbis after Jesus, after the Gospels are written, have a dictum that goes mitatan shel tzadikim mechaperet, which means the deaths of the righteous make atonement. Mm-hmm. And so this idea is just one that is 
extremely common in Jewish tradition. It predates Matthew. It postdates Matthew. And so I think once we get our a handle on some of the literature and the history around the Gospels, yeah, we may not like this idea, but at least we know that it's couched in right. Judaic thinking, right. and it's not something that Jesus or the Gospel writers are just making up. Okay, so even within that context of being familiar with surrounding languages, uh, or not languages, but other texts, so not only from the Tanakh, but maybe other uh, Jewish oral traditions that were happening at the same time. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what the author of Matthew is doing with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because there's a Luke version, uh, but Matthew's version is really interesting, and especially as we kind of try to make these correlations with the the Jewishness of the text, and if we keep the theme going that the author is is painting a picture of the Israelite history and then saying Jesus is kind of reenacting this whole thing. So, how does the Sermon on the Mount? fit into that? Because it there's problematic things here, too, that I hope we can talk about. There are, yeah. We, we should definitely, I know what problematic things you're referencing, so we should definitely <laughs> talk about that. Uh, they're not problematic once you read them in their first no, century right. Jewish context, exactly. but they can be problematic later <laughs> That's right. So uh, set the sermon, stage sermon first. Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so yeah. just a, a brief word about Jesus rerunning Israel's history, as we saw with the fulfillment citations. Why is Jesus on a mountain in Matthew chapter mm-hmm. 5 and talking about the Torah? Who else does that? Moses does that. (laughs) In fact, this is kind of the pinnacle, pun intended, of of Matthew's presentation of early on in Jesus's life as a recapitulation of Moses. Hmm. Jesus is born amidst, you know, a threat of being killed by the king. That sounds a lot like Moses in the time of Pharaoh. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Moses goes to Egypt and uh, and then comes out of Egypt. Um, He's in Midian for a while, fleeing Egypt. Then he comes back to bring his people out of Egypt. Just like out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is in Israel, goes down to Egypt and comes back out of Egypt. Jesus has a baptism in the Jordan River. That sounds a lot like Joshua and the the parting of the Jordan River to get into the land of Canaan. And then, okay, so then finally Jesus goes up on a mountain and starts talking about the law. That's Moses. So that is all of the material from Matthew chapter 1 through 5 is really recapitulating on a very deep level the life of Moses. Jesus is a new Moses according to Matthew. Not necessarily the case with Luke. In Luke's version, as you mentioned, Cindy, this is Luke chapter 6. Luke, It's a sermon on the plain. Right. And actually in Luke, it says that Jesus comes down from a mountain, finds a place of level ground, which in Greek is pedinos. It literally means a place to put his foot on level ground. So it's the exact opposite topography that we get in Matthew. Why? Mm-hmm. Luke's not as concerned about presenting Jesus as a new, Ma- a new Moses. Matthew right. is. This this just goes to the fact that there are four different Gospels and different presentations of Jesus, and right. we should revel in that because they're all exciting and wonderful. Without one of the presentations, it would, it would become less rich. But, right. but that's what Matthew wants to do. Kind of in line with that, Jesus being on a mountain like a Moses figure um, and talking about Torah, he does say that he is— like, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. But then he, this is the problematic stuff, or it seems so on the surface. Then he goes on to say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And it seems to be super contrary to the Torah. So it seems to go against what he just said he was doing by fulfilling the law. So how do we bring in the the Jewishness to more fully understand what Jesus is actually saying here? Great question. So, right. So in Matthew 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, oftentimes in Christian tradition, we think, okay, well, fulfill just means it's over. Right. right? Like that is, right, I did if it. If you fulfill it, then it's, there's no need for it anymore, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so the Greek word for fulfill is pleureo. And uh, it, it just doesn't mean what most people think it means. Mm. This is a Greek translation of the Hebrew likayim, or the Aramaic likayim, which comes from the word kum, which means to mm. establish, mm. to mm-hmm. get up, to stand on your two feet. So what Jesus is doing in, in fulfilling this material is establishing it, doing it rightly. Mm. That's really what it means, just doing it. Okay. So then he gets up to the, to the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know, you've heard it said, thou shall not murder. But I say to you, don't even get angry. Now, in, in scholarly tradition, these are called the antitheses. Um, mm-hmm. If anything keeps me awake at night, it's this scholarly title, because they aren't antitheses. The idea that they're antitheses means that Jesus is saying something against the Torah, right. anti, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, in exchange for the command. And so then Jesus would be breaking what he just said. Moreover, he'd be breaking Deuteronomy, as you know, Cindy, Mm -hmm. because Deuteronomy says, thou shalt not add or subtract from Mm -hmm. this law. And so if Jesus is offering, if okay, how about this? If thou shalt not get angry, that's what Jesus does. If that is replacing thou shalt not murder or adding to the law, then Jesus is breaking Deuteronomy. Do we want that? I don't think so. Right. I don't think we want that. So what's Jesus doing? It's a very, very common rabbinic move that shows up in the literature after the New Testament. It's called building a fence around the Torah. And in the Mishnah, the the fundamental Judaic piece of literature after the destruction of the temple in 70, the the beginning of a chapter called Pirkei Avot, it's really called a tractate, but for our Mm -hmm. purposes, it's just a chapter. It begins with, you know, as a good rabbi, you should, um, you know, be judicious in judgment, raise up many disciples and build a fence around the Torah. What does that mean? Um, It means that if you're concerned about breaking a Torah command, just make it a little bit more difficult to get to the command. That is, build a fence around the garden of the commandment. Let me give you a quick example. So like an example would be, okay, it says don't work on the Sabbath according to the Torah. Okay. Question would be, what's work? How can I know that I'm not working on the Sabbath? Right. Okay, can I, can I build, you know, a, a bench, you know, or what, can I go to my workbench and start building something in my garage? Is that work? Because I'm doing it, you know, as a hobby, so I don't really understand what's working about that. Right. Well, the rabbis would just say, look, if you're, if you're concerned about not working, don't even pick up tools on the Sabbath. Okay, so no tools. The Torah doesn't say thou shall not pick up tools. It just doesn't say it. Right. The Torah says don't work on the Sabbath. So what the rabbis are doing is the fence is no tools. The garden that the fence is protecting is, is the command, don't work on the Sabbath. So when Jesus is, is saying, don't get angry, he's absolutely not giving a new commandment or even right. saying that the commandment actually means don't get angry or even that Jesus gets to the heart of that commandment. You know, there was no heart in the Torah beforehand. <laughs> right. Jesus really, you know, he's not, he's not cool with the letter of the law. He wants the spirit of the law. All right. None of that is right in the context. In the context, Jesus is just saying this. Thou shalt not murder is the command. Do not transgress that. You know what a good idea for not murdering someone would be? Don't even get angry. Because if you never get angry, you'll never go so far as to murder another human being. Mm -hmm. So the commandment, the Torah-breaking command, can't be don't get angry because Jesus himself gets angry in Matthew. Mm -hmm. Because that is, if Jesus gets angry later on, then Jesus is breaking his own new, quote-unquote, new command. Makes no sense whatsoever. The new Torah command is not, don't get angry. 
The Torah command remains, don't murder. The fence, in order to protect you from breaking the command of thou shalt not murder, hmm. is don't get angry. Uh, one more. Uh, Jesus says, uh, how, about, how about this one? Because this one does seem like Jesus is changing it on first blush. Uh, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, don't uh, swear falsely. You can read about this in Leviticus. And Jesus says, I say to you, don't swear at all. Okay. So uh, at first blush, it looks like, okay, the Torah command says, don't swear falsely. That's assuming that you are swearing to God or making an oath to God on some level. And Jesus says, don't do it at all. Is Jesus abolishing the command? It sort of looks like that, but that's really not the case. Jesus is just building another fence saying, if you just zip it, you'll be sure <laughs> never to transgress. Thou shalt not make an oath falsely. Yeah. And what's, a, what's making an oath falsely, by the way? In Israel's scriptures, there's a little phrase. It's, it's Chai Adonai, as the Lord lives. And people would invoke this phrase, Chai Adonai, when they wanted to make an oath to God. As the Lord lives, I will accomplish X, Y, Z. If I don't, may the Lord who lives make me not living anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a classic like oath formula. And so Jesus is just saying, look, the more times you say Chai Adonai, you know, you're going to break one of these oaths, and then you're going to have sworn falsely and then broken the Torah command. So here's a good mm -hmm. idea. Here's my fence. Just keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, you'll never swear falsely. So Jesus is absolutely not saying that the Torah command is not operative anymore, nor is he giving a new commandment that supersedes the old, quote unquote, old right. commandment. Right. Jesus is merely building fences around the Torah. And this is a classic rabbinic thing to do in Jesus's day. And I think it's such a beautiful way to look at what Jesus's teachings are and to imagine yourself in the crowd because the crowd would have understood that's what he's doing. And it is a nice corrective for us because I hear a lot of people who talk about the Pharisees and being ultra religious and, you know, they assign that build a fence around the Torah, but they kind of say it in a diminutive way. So obviously you would not be among those people to say that about the Pharisees, especially if you've been listening to this podcast and heard the episode a couple weeks ago in which I talked with Pinchas Shear about who the Pharisees were. If you missed that episode, you really should go back and listen. But now we're seeing Jesus is right in the midst of the people and the culture doing the exact same thing. So maybe we should just widen our view of grace towards people in antiquity a lot more than we normally do. No question. I completely agree with that. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a word that I wish we would expunge from our Christian vocabularies, and that is the word legalism or legalistic. Because, you, you know, you look at the, at the, the yeah. Sermon on the Mount, and if you think that Jesus is giving a new command that gets at the spirit versus the letter, you want to, you'll come back away from that and say, okay, so Jesus doesn't really care about like the little stuff. Jesus, you know, but the whole point is get to the spirit of it, you know, just don't get angry, right? You know what I mean? Okay. The problem with this is <laughs> there's, a, there's a very important text in Matthew 23, 23, super easy to remember, 23, 23. Yeah. And Jesus is, is yelling at the Pharisees as he's wont to do. But it's not because they're legalistic. As long as we're, we're you know, understanding legalism is following the legal Torah, right? So what does Jesus say? Jesus' critique is the following. You Pharisees, you, you tithe as you give 10% of your mint, dill, and cumin, the smallest amount of stuff you have. Could you imagine trying to give 10%? Go in your spice jar, 
at home, try to give 10% of mint. It's the smallest thing you could possibly do. I mean, imagine it, right? Okay, so that's just a a fancy way of Jesus saying, you guys are so meticulous about the Torah, right? But in in looking at the little 10% of the mint, you've missed the larger things of the law. Mm -hmm. What are those? Justice, mercy, Mm -hmm. and faith, pistis in Greek. That kind of destroys our often understood dichotomy between law and faith, okay? Jesus says that law is a pillar, or faith is a pillar of the law. Okay, so that's just an aside. But then Jesus says, look, you've, you've done the little things, but you've missed the big stuff. And what does Jesus say? You should have continued to do the former, that is, do tithing your mint, dill, and cumin, without neglecting the bigger stuff. So if anyone is legalistic about the minutia of the Torah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, there's just no other way around it. So, so that's right? like a mic drop moment. Uh, wait, what? <laughs> sure, I'm. A, I'm, I'm I, I think too. I mean, it's a great. It's a great mic drop moment from Jesus. Jesus actually says, "You know, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel." That's the last thing that he says in that little exchange. Yeah. yeah. Meaning, you're trying to strain out an unkosher gnat from your wine. That's a little thing, but. As you're focused on the wine, you miss the big stuff. But Jesus would still want you to not eat gnats. Right, 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 right. So so that is, Jesus' critique against the Pharisees is not that they're quote-unquote legalistic. Jesus is. uh, Jesus' critique is one of praxis, not of thought. Jesus thinks that Pharisees are hypocrites because they're saying one thing from the Torah and doing something else. But that has nothing to do with the amount of desire that Jesus has for doing every little jot and tittle of the Torah. Just to go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, not one iota, not one dot will fall from this material until all is accomplished. That means that every little bit of ink in the Torah is still, Jesus still wants that to be done. Yeah. So yeah, a little bit of a soapbox, but I I just think that we (laughs) should reevaluate our usage of yeah. that term legalism, because I yeah. think we're misusing it vis-a-vis Jesus in the context of Matthew. Yeah, and I love what you said about Jesus is still focusing on the actions, what people are doing, in contrast to maybe what they've decided, or they're saying this is righteousness, but they're doing something else. Because that's become a, an issue in the modern Western church, anyways. We put a whole bunch of emphasis on deciding personally what your parameters of faith are, and we've yep negated the doing and embodying and acting out of that, which Jesus might have a few choice words for us as well. Indeed. Please do subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening on any of the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or Google Podcasts, would you please rate it and leave a review that will help other people find us a little bit better? Thank you. Follow the link in the episode notes to find out how you can get this and many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, you can use the coupon code ISRAEL when you register to receive a free surprise. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds that you hear. I look forward to our final Advent conversation next week.